Let's pray together. God, open our eyes to see how uh, amazing that passage, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, really was. God, may we see Christ in it. May we see its fulfillment in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God, I pray that we would open our eyes to to who he is and our desperate need of him. And that we would lay ourselves down. We would lay our idols down and follow the one and only true king. God, help us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, you know, we made a commitment early on, we, the Redeemer, uh, the, the elders here at Redeemer, that we would boldly, faithfully, diligently proclaim the truth of God's Word. We decided before things ever began that, you know what, we're, we're not going to leave out anything that is profitable. And it's all profitable. We're not going to skirt around certain issues because they're uncomfortable. We're not going to dismiss certain things because, gosh, we just don't like the implications that that means on my life. And so we, we've devoted ourselves to this because more than anything, man needs the truth of God's Word. It is the, it's God's Word that brings life. There is no life apart from that. So the, the best thing that we could do, the, the thing that is most glorifying to God, the thing that is for your good and not for our own, is to faithfully preach the Word of God. We've committed to it. Though at times we may not like it, at times it's uncomfortable, at times it is scary, we need God's truth as God presents it, not as we would want it to be, without any mixture of error, without watering it down, without neglecting or dismissing certain things because we really don't like the implications. We basically made this promise to one another, we made this promise to you, that we are going to pull no punches. We're going to do it. And at times that's really, really hard. At times that makes you feel like crud. At times that brings you to your knees. But I hope you understand something, that every time you get rocked by what the Word of God has to say, that we get rocked right alongside you. It's not like we're throwing punches and we're not receiving them. We've got to punch ourselves before we hit you. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. We know that, that preaching the truth of God's Word will be unpopular. People won't like it. People will dismiss us at times because, hey, we're just a little too serious about this. We're just a little too fanatical about it. And so we just need to just move on. But you know what's most heartbreaking? The thing that is most heartbreaking is when we, we bear our souls from the truth of God's Word, wanting to commend that to you. Because that is your desperate need. And we see people just dismiss it and walk away. We see them look straight in the face of Jesus Christ through the Word, and then they, they turn. They go elsewhere. Because they don't like the way it looks. But if God's Word is the authority, then our consciences are held captive to it. And for the glory of God, for the good of others, we can do no other. We've been working through Mark. 
And as we've been going through Mark, one of the things that's come up recently that we've been hammering on, that I've been hammering on, is the, both the cost of discipleship and also the unbelief of Jesus' followers. It's happened time and time and time again. But we've got to deal with it. But as we've poured over this text, God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, He does something. He takes that, that spotlight that He has placed on the lives of the disciples, and then He begins to turn it upward, upward so that it is focused now on your souls, like, like that of like when you're about in surgery and the doctor comes in and he moves the lamp, just putting it over that spot where he's getting ready to take his knife and insert it. That's not comforting. That's, that's hard. And we don't like it. It's tough. I mean, it, it, it is uneasy. It is tense. It is fearful at times to come face to face with the physician of our souls. But here's the thing, guys. We, so far, the doctor has only prescribed the problem. And he's told you about the procedure. He's now getting ready to cut. And we don't like it. But we have to know this. It's got to get worse before it can get better. It has to. This uneasiness, this tension, this, this fear that we experience is like that of a patient lying on the table waiting for the doctor to come in and insert the knife. Right? That's where we're at. But I want you to know that God, through His Word, and through the work of His Holy Spirit, is performing heart surgery. Alright? He is, he is doing a work on your soul. He is seeking to, to cure it. It will not always be pleasant. In fact, most of the time, it's not going to be. But it's good. And it's right. And we need it. I'm warning you ahead of time. Because in these next two sermons, it's operation time. And I'm asking you not to run from the table. I'm asking you to embrace it. I'm not asking you. God is asking you. You see, God is the physician of the soul. And at times, He has to maim in order to restore. He has to tear down in order to build up. He has to wound in order to heal. This is one of those times. The discomfort that you experience is conviction. So respond in repentance and faith. Don't just run from the table. Trust in the doctor, not me. I'm only his assistant. I'm only the one handing the tools. Right? God's word is the scalpel. God's Holy Spirit is the bandage. God's Son is the cure. So now that I've warned you, hopefully I, I've... We can release some of that fear a little bit, you know. Uh, but if you run from the table, just know that you are going to be committing the very sin that this passage speaks against. All right? You see, we all have this tendency towards unbelief. We trust in ourselves. We love ourselves. We put ourselves first. And we will use any and every means necessary in order to seek our advancement, to seek our benefit, even if we think it's Jesus. We'll even try to use Him as a means to our own ends. But that's not what it means to be a disciple of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ, we must put Him first. 
whatever the cost. You can't just take from Him what you want and leave the rest. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. That's page 844 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I encourage you to read along with me. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And He asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered Him, You are the Christ. And He strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The first truth that we learn about following Christ is that discipleship is not simply affirming who Jesus is. This passage actually serves as a major transition in Mark's Gospel. Chapters 1-8, through Mark has been concerned about showing us, not just telling us, but showing us who Jesus is. We see all these miracles, we see all these signs and wonders, we, we stand in amazement of all the things that Jesus has said and done, and He's doing that in order to tell us, okay, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And now, starting here, starting in verse 29 with Peter's affirmation, Mark's purpose now shifts. We understand who Jesus is, and now we need to look at why He came. Why did Jesus... Come here. Why did the Son of God take on flesh and live as a human? That's what chapters 9 through 16 are all about. And then intermingled within these two parts is what it means to follow Him. This cost of discipleship. So we pick back up where we left off last week. Jesus and His disciples, they've just left the the Jewish village of Bethsaida and they're traveling north towards the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan area. It's a Gentile dominant area. And while they're on the way, Jesus then asks His disciples, Hey, who do people say that I am? And they respond to Him, Well, you know, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Other people think that you're like the return of Elijah that that Malachi talked about. Some people think that you're one of the prophets. And we've heard this before. We heard this back in in chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, in the palace of the unbelieving ruler Herod, the man who had executed John the Baptist. It's amazing how widespread these wrong perceptions of who Jesus is really was. Like after all that He had said and all that He had done, all these wonders and miracles and signs, how He taught with authority, people still don't understand who He is. And they dismiss Him as simply like, oh, He's a prophet. Oh, you know, He's like Elijah. Oh, He's John the Baptist. But they don't recognize who He is. And so Jesus is like, you know what? I'll turn to my disciples and I'll ask the question, who do you say that I am? You've followed me for over a year. You've lived life with me. You've seen all that I've said and done. 
right? You've seen the, 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 how I taught with authority and taught with compassion, how I've done these miraculous things that only God can do. Who is it that you say that I am? Who am I? And Peter responds, Oh, you're the Christ. <laughs> Pray for Peter. He got it partially right. <laughs> Perhaps Peter thought back to John the Baptist's testimony of how John was the one out in the desert calling out, preparing the way of the Lord, the one who is waiting for the, the, the mighty one, the strap of whose sandal he was unworthy to stoop down and untie, the one who would give the Holy Spirit without measure. Perhaps he was remembering John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus' baptism, how when Jesus showed up and He entered into the water, the, the heavens tore apart and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and there was a thundering roar from heaven. Behold, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Perhaps Peter thought back to the many displays of Jesus' authority. That, that authority that just compelled Peter the first time that he had ever met Jesus just to get up and leave everything and follow Him. I'm leaving my life. I'm leaving my family. I'm leaving my job. I'm leaving my identity. Everything about me, I'm leaving it in order to follow Him because I recognize He's authoritative. That, that He is sovereign. Maybe it was the authority that He saw Jesus teach with. He didn't teach like the religious leaders of the day. No, there was real power and real authority that was in His words and the crowd was just astonished by everything that they heard Him say. Maybe Peter thought about the many signs and wonders and miracles, how Jesus' authority was displayed in the way that He had healed the sick, the way He had caused the disabled and the diseased to be cured of their, their ailments. Perhaps he thought about Jesus' authority over demons, how He could speak a word and they fled. Maybe he thought about Jesus' authority to forgive sins, Jesus' authority over the law, Jesus' authority to impart faith. Or maybe His authority over the wind and the waves. His authority to miraculously feed thousands or to walk on water or to even cause a little dead girl to rise to life again. Maybe He thought about all the times where Jesus taught from the Old Testament of the things concerning Himself and His soul burned within Him. And it was as if these passages were being fulfilled before His very eyes. Lord knows that Peter had a better vantage point at that point than anyone. All right, he had spent more time with Jesus. He was there in the inner circle. He, he listened to Jesus preach more than anyone else. He saw miracles that, that no one else saw. I mean, he was there in the thick of it. He was more experienced than any other disciple. And in this moment of either complete mental and spiritual clarity or perhaps out of sheer impulse... Peter stands up, he, he steps forward, and he says, You are the Christ! Praise God, he's seen, in part, but not all the way. Now, when Jesus is called the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ like Chet Daniels or like Jim Smith or whatever. The Christ is a, a particular title. It's a specific reference. It means the Anointed One. In the Old Testament, the people who were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. They were the only ones anointed. And over the course of Israel's history, God had started making promises to Israel, saying, hey, listen, I am going to send you a prophet like that of Moses. 
I am going to send you a king like the, the, the son of David who would rule over you forever. And so they began to understand this term Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one as a leader, a prophet, a priest, but primarily they were hoping for a king who would come and, and he would deliver his people from the oppression of their foreign rule, that he would purify the nation and he would reestablish proper eternal Jewish worship to God. That's what they were hoping for. But for them, Christ was to be an earthly political ruler, a royal, a, a noble figure, but not some obscure carpenter, no matter how amazing he was and the things that he taught and the things that he said and the things that he'd done, this, this man's ultimately going to die humiliating death on the cross. They couldn't square that with their concept of what the Christ is. And this is Peter's problem. He can't wrap his head around it. He's rightly identified Jesus as the Christ. He believes that Jesus has been sent by God. He believes that Jesus has been anointed but he has no idea ultimately what that meant. He doesn't get it. For him, that title came with all sorts of wrong expectations. I mean, from the time that he was a boy, as early as he can remember, he was sat down on somebody's lap and he was told about this promised Messiah who would come and deliver their people. He would come and he would, he would, he would throw out all the, the, their enemies. He would destroy and vanquish them. He would purify their nation. He would purify their religion. And he had hoped in that. Peter was looking for a conquering hero. He was looking for that anointed king from Isaiah 61. But he couldn't possibly tie that to the same anointed king being a suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He couldn't make those connections. He was only looking at half the messianic passages in the Old Testament. Their desires for political power had actually blinded them to God's true intention. But we've also seen from chapter 1, and we'll see it again later, that not only does Peter want this conquering hero to come and to deliver them, but Peter also wants personal glory. He wants to be exalted before men. He likes the attention. He loves the crowd. He wants to get rid of the kids because they're not so important. And he wants all the important people to come and to flock around. He's banking on the fact that because he is one of Jesus' earliest followers, because he's one of the twelve that have been chosen, that when Jesus comes into power, things are going to be good for him. He is really going to receive glory and blessing. He is going to have health and wealth and prosperity and power. Life will be good. That's what he's looking for. He thinks that following Jesus means taking up your sword and doing battle, but Jesus is about to teach him, no, it's actually laying down your sword and taking up your cross. And so, Jesus is God's anointed one. Yes, absolutely. But they still don't understand what that means. And because of that, because they're wrong expectations, because of their blindness, for those reasons, Jesus says in verse 30, he strictly charges them not to tell anyone. All right, they've got the title right, but to tell the title with the wrong expectations is to drum up all sorts of these fanatical wrong ideas. And so Jesus tells them to be quiet. They don't fully understand what that means. Now I say all this because we do the same thing that Peter does. All right, we, we identify Jesus by a name that we don't fully understand what it means. 
we'll eagerly, quickly, and uh, profess that Jesus is the Christ, but we are, are really, really ignorant to the true meaning and implication of that word. We see some truth in it, but ultimately we, we end up doing it not because we believe the truth or are bound by that truth or are eager to submit ourselves to that truth. We're doing it because we think that if I profess Jesus as the Christ, that He'll give me what I want. That I'll receive health, wealth, glory, prosperity, power, all those kinds of things if I just accept Jesus. And so we, we, we just simply make a profession. It's not motivated by love. It's not motivated by a true recognition of who He is and a desire to follow Him. But just like Peter, we get the title right, but the implications are all wrong. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is the Son of God, then your life, your breath, your very being is directly owed to Him. He is your Creator. You, by every right, belong to Him. If you create it, you own it. Jesus has proven who He is through His words and His actions. You can't do the things that only God can do unless you are God. And Jesus has done those already. He's shown them over and over and over again. He's proven Himself to be the Son of God. If Jesus is the Christ, then He is God's chosen and anointed King. Now, we don't understand what this means because we've, we've never lived in a monarchy. We've have, we have a lot of freedom, a lot of leeway to do what we want. And we basically live as if I'm the king of my life. You can be the king of your life, and that's fine, but I'm the king of my life. We don't get what it means to be, uh, for, for someone to be our king. But if Jesus is the king, this means that He is your sovereign. You must obey Him. You must serve Him. You must follow Him. You must identify yourself by Him, not just in title, but in action. He must be your Lord. You can't just say the right words. You must live every moment of every day in light of that truth, completely subjecting yourself to Him and His ways and His rules, His plan, not your own. So discipleship is not simply affirming who Jesus is. Second, nor is it simply knowing why Jesus came. Verse 31 tells us why He came. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The Messiah didn't come to restore the nation of Israel and to rule over it as king, at least not in the geographic and political sense, not in the way that they expected. Jesus did come to judge. He did come to purify hearts. He did come to restore right worship to God, but again, not in the way that anyone expected. So why didn't they see it? I mean, it's not as though God didn't leave a witness There's so many Old Testament passages that refer to this suffering servant who would be the means of restoration, who would be the means of of bringing God's people into God's kingdom under His rule and His blessing. But they still didn't see it. The Jews couldn't come to this understanding. We just looked earlier... Caleb just read Isaiah 52.13-53.12. A passage that clearly, uh, persuasively, I mean, just in our minds, obviously proclaims that Jesus, this Messiah, must suffer and die 
And even there's allusions to the resurrection and the coming glory that through that. I mean, it clearly articulates those things, but, but yet they don't see it. See, we have the vantage point. Well, I, I should back up. When they looked at the suffering servant, they thought they, it was referring to Israel. So every time you read that passage and you read he, you're thinking Israel. But let me just read one verse from that passage to you. Isaiah 53, 6. And we, the Israelites, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Israel, the iniquities of all Israel. Does that make any sense? Not at all. To us it seems obvious, because we have the vantage point of the New Testament. But for Peter and for the Jews in that day, they just didn't get it. They were blinded by their expectations. And so they began to associate the right title with Jesus, but he still had to teach them what that meant. God's anointed one would, just like in Isaiah 53, suffer, be rejected, be murdered, and rise again. This uh, passage that we're looking at is the first of three major predictions of Jesus' passion, of His death, and of His resurrection. That's if you don't count chapter 2, verse 20, where Jesus basically says, hey, when your bridegroom is here, you can't fast, but when the bridegroom goes away, then they will fast. There's a prediction right there. But this is the first of three major indicators. Times in which Jesus says, hey, listen, I am going to suffer. I am going to be rejected. I am going to die on a cross and I am going to rise again three days later. And he does this so that they know for sure that when it happens, that he knows what he's talking about. He's proving that he's the Son of God. Now you may be thinking, well, if he's God's Son, then why does he call himself the Son of Man? Right? He says it right there in the text. And we dealt with this back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then again in verse 28, that this is a self-designated title. He's not saying that I'm just a man. This is a title that Jesus gives himself. And if you take every time the Old and New Testament passages come together and they're talking about the Son of Man, you realize that this title means this divine human who would come and he would suffer and be rejected and die and rise again in order to pay the ransom for sin and to purchase a kingdom for himself. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus would suffer. He would be rejected. The religious leaders who were wanting the very same thing that Peter was wanting, the holiest men, the best men of of Israel, right, the most devout, waiting for Jesus, they're the ones who are going to reject him. They're going to see to it that he would die and he would rise again. This is why the Messiah came. This was His purpose. In this one verse, Jesus is actually preaching the Gospel to us. He is telling us who He is and why He came. This one verse is a summary. In fact, in verse 32 it says, and He said this plainly. But if you translate that literally, it actually says, and Jesus proclaimed the word boldly. Jesus preached the Gospel confidently, clearly. He preached the Word plainly. He's preaching the Gospel to His disciples. And He's preaching to us as well. You might be saying, well, Dutchette, I know the Gospel. I even went home last week after your sermon, and I went and I memorized that last question in the Baptist Catechism, what is the Gospel? I even went out and I bought Bob Coughlin's CD where he turned that question into a song. I get it. I understand. 
But it's not enough just to know why Jesus came. You must truly experience it. You must feel the weight of it. You must realize that you have rebelled against the Son of God. That you've tried to live as king over your life. That you've tried to live as if this is your world and you are God. You have to to feel the, the weight of the eternal wrath of God against your soul and know that you deserve it. And to be able to embrace the loving, undeserved forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus who came to restore your soul eternally to God. How can you not experience that? How can you not feel the weight of that? But all too often we do it. Like Eustace, we must feel the pain of Aslan ripping away the scales. You can't just know it. Because you can affirm the account. You can say this is what the Bible says, but still be ignorant of who Jesus is and how wretched you are against God. Your sin is against God. You have to experience it. Um, I've been reading uh, the, the bio- I just finished reading the, the biography of Adoniram Judson called To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. I highly recommend it. It's one of the best books I've read. It's the best Christian biography I've ever read. It's unbelievable. Adoniram Judson was the first American foreign missionary. He was the first man to ever leave America and to go overseas with the mission of the gospel. He went to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And there he suffered greatly. Unbelievably. For 37 years he labored, uh, being under the, the pain and penalty of death, near death experiences all the time, spent a year and a half in a torturous, what they call death prison. You know, like he lost, he lost two wives, he lost, you know, seven of his kids, he lost many of his fellow partners in the gospel to sickness and illness and all those kinds of things. He suffered greatly. And there's a, there's a, an account in there about how so while he was in prison, his wife was basically on her own, and she was doing everything she could just to make sure that he stayed alive. He could die at a moment. The, the government was so corrupt, she had to bribe constantly. There was this constant tension and anxiety about whether or not they were going to live to see tomorrow. And there's, so she ends up giving all that, she, all that they have in order to, to make sure that he's alive. It was actually when the British came up and they, they basically took over that allowed for the release of Adoniram Judson. Uh, she had to suffer amazing abuse. It's just unbelievable how these people treated her. The shame, the degradation, it, it was crazy. But when, uh, but when the British came in, when they took over control, the, they decided that they were going to hold a state dinner. The, the, the Britons, they, they held a, a state dinner And they wanted to show the Burmese officials just how great Britain was, right? So they spared no expense. It was pomp and fanfare. They put out, they they went just off the rocker. I mean, putting out all the banners, all the flags they had, all the just intricate silverware and place settings, all this stuff. Everybody had their fancy suits on, and they're, they're basically dealing with cavemen, you know? So you got cavemen and you got these very official people there. And they had this dinner and they had all these Burmese officials around this table. Music was playing. It was just awe-inspiring. The, Brit, uh, the, the Burmese, they didn't know what to think. 
This was unbelievable. They're just starting to realize how great Britain really was. And so at one point, right before they were getting ready to serve the food, the music stops. And the general, General Campbell, he gets up and he very officially, he, he walks over through the door in a very formal way. And he comes out in just like a procession. And he has on his arm Ann Judson. And he escorts her up and he sits her down at his right hand. Suddenly these Burmese officials who had abused her, who had treated her shamefully, who have stolen from her and lied to her and cheated her, are now recognizing just how amazing and valuable and priceless and upstanding this woman was. They're getting it for the first time. This is an amazing woman. And I have treated her like junk. They began to tremble. They didn't know what to do. Because they knew in their government, if you ever treated the queen that way, you're dead. Torture all the time. I mean, that's your life. That's your lot. And so they're beginning to fear. One man in particular, he starts shaking and he can't even eat. The food drops off of his fork. He, he doesn't know what to do. And so the general notices this and he looks over at, at the man. And then he looks over at, at Anne and, and he, he asks her, he's like, you know, what's up here? What, why is this guy acting like this? And she's like, well, he probably knows that his life is in danger because I'm now under your protection. And the commander said, well, what happened? And so she very cordially, without giving lots of details, described a little bit of her experience during that year and a half while Adoniram was in prison. And this man, above everybody else, though everybody did, how he had treated her. And it talks about Adoniram, he looks around, and he sees that even though she is not casting blame, Right? She's not trying to be vindictive. The British officers are almost ready to break rank and come over and strangle this guy. It is everything they could do to keep their composure. They are so angry at the man and they are glaring at these, these officials and these officials know it. Now they're trembling. The blood is, is, is leaving their heads. They're, they're starting to turn pale. They don't know what to do. And she's telling this story and they're, and, and they're, Eyes are penetrating these men's souls. They know that they are guilty and that they deserve death. They deserve torture for how they treated her. And so as this tension, you can just experience it. As this tension is built up so much, she then turns and she looks directly at the man. And in Burmese, she says to him, You have nothing to fear. I wonder if that's your experience when the gospel has been communicated to you and you realize Jesus is worth far more than Aunt Jetson of an immeasurable, priceless value. He is the Son of God and you have abused Him. You have scorned Him. You have treated Him shamefully. You have treated Him like dirt. And you deserve punishment. You deserve torture. You deserve death for all eternity. But He looks to you in your eyes and He says to you, you're forgiven. That is how we must feel about why Jesus came. 
We can't just experience that in words, in doctrinal statements. We have to feel the weight of it. You see, it's possible to know why Jesus came, but not love Him. It's possible to understand who He is and make little of Him. It's possible for you to comprehend the nature and consequences of your sin and still cherish it, still love it. You'll experience no joy at the thought of forgiveness. You'll experience no change of heart because you are still worshiping yourself. That's really what you're doing. You are loving yourself. You are exalting yourself. You are making much of yourself. At that point, Jesus is nothing more to you than a napkin that you use to wipe the blemish off of your face only to be thrown on the ground. And here's where we get into the thick of it. See, discipleship is not simply affirming who Jesus is and knowing why He came. Third, because you can do those things and you can still put yourself at the center. Peter was unwilling to accept Jesus' teaching regarding who He was and why He came. He was unwilling to embrace the fact that Jesus says, hey, the Messiah, the anointed King that you're waiting for, He's going to suffer and die and rise again. And so Peter takes Him aside in verse 32, and it says that, that He tried to rebuke Jesus. Alright? This is, this is not just like admonishment, like, um, hey buddy, what you're saying doesn't line up with Scripture. This is the worst word for rebuke. This is, this is the reproof for evil. This is how Jesus rebukes the demons. This is the word that he uses of Peter trying to discipline the Son of God. I mean, can you imagine this? The audacity of this jerk coming up and saying to you, you're wrong! You don't know what you're talking about! This is unbelievable! And Peter is appalled by what Jesus has just said. He's like, no, Jesus! The Christ is supposed to be the victorious King. He's not supposed to suffer a degradating and humiliating death on the cross. That's unbelievable. I can't accept that. There is no worse death than death on the cross. This, it's, it's reprehensible. This is why the cross was such a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't possibly get that their crowning, their conquering hero would die on the cross for sin. And even if he would rise again from the grave, which they thought was end times, not three days later, then, then that would not even be enough to satisfy or to overcome the shame and humiliation of their great king dying on the cross. It is unbelievable. They can't accept it. They are unwilling to connect the anointed one of Isaiah 61 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. What you are saying, Jesus, is appalling. Scripture can't say that. I won't let it say that. You've gone too far. You need correction. And so Peter, being the intelligent, calm-thinking man that he is, took it upon himself to discipline the Son of God. After all, Jesus did just say, hey, you know, God has given me the ability to see that you are the Christ. And if God has given me that ability, I am probably a better official in, in, in being able to declare what that Christ really meant. <laughs> this is foolishness. It is absolute foolishness. This is clearly not going to go well for Peter. 
Right? And so what does it say there in verse 33? Jesus smiles sort of pleasantly at at Peter, you know, just like a, a mother smiles at her son when he, he says something that's completely wrong, but it's really, 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 really cute. And he come, comes up to Peter and he says, Listen, Peter, I appreciate your sentiments here, but there are a few points where you've just, you seem to be slightly incorrect. I tell you what, why don't we come over here, let's sit aside, and let's, let's discuss and enlighten one another. Is that what he says? Absolutely not. He says, Get behind me, Satan! So get back there, devil boy. Get your head out of your things of man. Sorry, I won't finish the idiom, but you can probably connect the dots. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight. Now, Jesus here is not saying that Peter is Satan or that he is possessed by Satan. Satan means adversary. And the, the, the figure Satan represents everything that is opposed to God. Okay, it, it's when you stand against God's character, against everything that 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 he his purposes, his design, his nature, his will. Then you are opposed to God. You are being an adversary. You are acting like Satan, even if you are well intending, like Peter may have been saying, listen, I just want to avert you from this thinking that you have to suffer. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You, you don't have to do this. You can reign and conquer. Even there, he's opposed to God. If you're opposed to God, you're acting as his adversary. Your attentions are like that of Satan. When disciples play God rather than follow Jesus, inevitably they become satanic. Don't you catch the weight of that? You are either set your mind on the things of God or the things that are against Him. To think like man is to follow Satan's line of thinking. But Jesus' rebuke is not just for Peter. It says that He turned and He saw His disciples before He ever made the rebuke. He's looking not at Peter directly. He's looking at his disciples. And this rebuke confronts Peter directly, but it also confronts them as well. In fact, it's a rebuke to all of us. Now, I've got to confess that that I was and I am still being rocked by this passage. I mean, God has used circumstances that have come up in my life, in the life of Redeemer. He's used this passage. He's working through Mark. He's been using Adoniram Judson's biography to all come together and show me the depth of my self-love in man-centered thinking. The same self-love and man-centered thinking that I see in you as well. I mean, let's face it. We all want easy believism. We all want to say, hey, listen, if I affirm, Jesus, that you're the Son of God, if I know what the Bible says about why you came, if I just try to live a good life and do some things for you when it's convenient for me, when I find it to be mutually advantageous, then I'm basically good. We all want that. We all want health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, who wants death? Do you want death? No, we don't. When we marry, we marry for better, not for worse, for richer, not for poorer, not in sickness, but in health, until death of your usefulness to me do we part. 
like Peter, we focus on the things of man, not the things of God. And you are lying to yourself. You are self-deceived if you think you're otherwise. Peter was concerned about his desires for the Messiah. He was concerned about his preferred future. Peter was concerned about his glory, his good, his reputation, his comfort, his security, not God and not the good of others. And we do the same thing. We, like Peter, say, Jesus, I am willing to follow you here, but not there. I'm willing to do this, but not that. Right? I, 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 if I, I'll do this, I'll do this thing here, if, if this can be my reward. If you're willing to give me what I want, then I'll do this. And I'll say that I'm following you as long as you're going in my direction. As soon as you turn away from that, I can't promise you anything. We do this all the time. Now, one of the reasons why Adoniram Judson's biography hit me so hard is that because here's this man who has suffered unbelievably. He was a a missionary to Burma for 37 years. He only came back to America one time, and that's because he was so sick he couldn't stay over there. He never wanted to come back. He knew that his devotion was there for life. He had personally baptized over 100 people. They had started 100 different churches. He was influential, personally influential in the salvation of 8,000 souls in his lifetime. Now sociologists look back and they're trying to, to sort of map out the influence of Adoniram Judson and they attribute 100,000 people coming to faith as a result of his ministry. 3,700 churches were started in Burma because of his work. He had translated the Bible into Burmese. He almost finished a Burmese to English, English to Burmese dictionary. The, the gospel had gone not just to the Burmese, but also to the, to the uh, Karens, the Kachins, the Chins. I mean, just spread all over the place. But the costs were heavy. He lost many fellow partners in the gospel, many missionary friends. He was constantly threatened and harangued by this corrupt Burmese government. He spent almost a year and a half in a torturous death camp prison. His family suffered many near-death experiences. He lost two wives. Only six of his 13 children survived childhood. And when they reached the age of seven or eight, they had to actually ship them back to America to ensure their survival, never to see them again. They had to get on a boat for a month journey, months and months and months, just by themselves to make it back. And it was during about year 13, shortly after he was released from prison, that shadows fell over Adoniram's life. At this point, he'd lost many friends. His first three children all had died. The oldest one was two years and three months old. And his beloved wife, Anne, the one I told you about earlier, she had passed away from a a bad illness. He got a letter thinking that it was his his youngest daughter, his daughter that had died, but it actually was his wife, and he was kind of bracing himself for one, crushed by the other. And 
as these shadows fell across his life. You know, at this point, for all the loss, for all the hardship, for all the pain, for all the suffering, for all the sacrifices, they only had about 18 souls to show for it. 18 souls in 13 years. And he began, you know, to suffer and to grieve. And, and as, as you would when you suffered like that, you begin to think and question, what is God doing? Why am I here? What is going on? Did I miss something? Did I miss God's call on my life? Why is this so unbelievably hard? Adonair began to question his purpose. He's overwhelmed by the sea of memories. And I'm going to quote it at this point. Adonairam began to suspect that his real motive in becoming a missionary had not been genuine humility or self-abnegation, but ambition. Ambition to be the first American foreign missionary, the first missionary to Burma, the first translator of the Bible into Burmese, first in his own eyes and the eyes of men. No wonder it took death itself by wholesale to teach him better. For Adoniram's mission, God had approval. For Adoniram and his self-love, a harsh lesson. Or so it seemed. I was just floored by this. I was like, this great man, this man who had sacrificed so much, more than you and I ever will, After all his pain, after all his hardship, after all his suffering, he surveyed the depth of his soul, and what did he find there? Self-love. Adoniram had to discover the depth of his depravity by drinking deeply of suffering. (laughs) I mean, I was blown away by this. I barely slept the week that I finished up this book. Because these thoughts kept coming toward my mind and I just had to pray and pray and pray. Pray for myself and pray for you. Because here's the thing, if Adoniram Judson struggled with self-love, knowing how much he had sacrificed, how much he had suffered, how much more to you or I? If Peter, who would die a martyr's death by hanging upside down on a cross, struggle with self-love, how much more do you or I? The truth is, it's far more than we are willing to be put under the knife to find out. You see, we want to come to Jesus, but we still want to play God. We want to set up limits on the way in which I am willing to follow Him. And we do it in in the craziest ways. Jesus, I'm willing to say that I'm a Christian, and I'll attend church most Sundays, but don't ask me. Don't ask me to covenant myself to your bride. I would prefer rather to go to her and to consume what I want from her and then leave her alongside the road like some kind of whore so that I can go out and I can sleep with all the bridesmaids. A lot of you young kids right here are thinking that very thing. That's the way that you're living. Thinking, I'm only here for a short time. I don't need to commit to a local church. I'm just going to involve myself in activity and think that I'm super religious, that God is pleased with me. All the while, I am turning my back upon your commands, your purposes for my life. It is the church. Jesus, I'll love you. Really, I'll love other people, but I'll only love what I see of myself in you. 
As much as we come to agreement, as much as we're like one another, I love you, but the second you're not like me, the second it becomes hard or it becomes uncomfortable because you've got tattoos or because you've got blue hair or because you're, you're older than me or that you're younger than me or I just don't like your taste in clothing, whatever it might be, then I'm not going to love that person. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to forgive that person who's wounded me. Jesus, don't ask me to make a decision for you, a decision that's going to close other doors to me so that I have to do the hard thing and I might not have all these options available to me anymore. I might have to make a commitment and that might have consequences on my life. I'd rather go through life flaking out and being non-committal. That's so much easier. Don't ask me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Don't ask me to raise my children and the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We do this all the time. I'll follow you when it's convenient for me. But don't ask me to give up my relationship. Don't ask me to give up my entertainment. Don't ask me to give up my dream job. Don't ask me to give up my beloved sin. I'll follow you as long as I feel comfortable. As long as I feel safe. As long as it is convenient for me. As long as it is not too burdensome. As long as I I don't have to suffer or experience pain or experience hardship. Don't ask me to sacrifice God. And don't ask me to give up my first love and Certainly, do not ask me to give up my life. See, every time we put a stipulation or a boundary, every time you put yourself before God, every time you ignore God's plan, God's purposes, God's design, God's will, you are setting yourself up against the things of God. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus is saying to you, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Just because you don't think it's a big deal, doesn't mean that he doesn't. Stop setting your mind on the things of man because fourth, true discipleship, and this is going to be brief, is is a mindset on the things of God. Now we're going to discover more of what he means by setting your mind on the things of God next week. But Peter... Uh, but he says to Peter here, the problem is, the problem of these disciples is that they're setting their minds on the things of man, not the things of God. Now, we set... Now, they've got some things right. I've got to reiterate that. They understand that Jesus is the Christ. They followed him for over a year. Congratulations. That's awesome. That's progress. But they're still, their minds are partially set on the things of man and not on God. They are half right. But in God's eyes, half right is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. To set your mind on the things of God, according to this context, means that you fully embrace who Jesus is, why He came, and what He determines that it means for you, you personally, to follow Him. You don't make the rules. You don't set the boundaries. He does. And this is the biggest problem with American Christianity. Right? It's unbelievable. We'll surround ourselves with enough of the truth that we think that we're safe. That we can feel good about ourselves. We'll make this profession 
right? We'll perform our regular religious activities either through some organization or in private. And we'll do this in order to make much of ourselves. We'll do this to exalt ourselves. But what we end up doing is inoculating ourselves to the gospel. We make ourselves immune to it. Jesus becomes to us nothing more than fire insurance or rabies vaccination. It's something that you do, but you're at the center of it. And it's only as good and loving and beneficial to you as it can keep you out of trouble or give you what you want. I'll follow him up to this point and no further because really I love myself. Jesus is second to my desires. So I'll follow him here but not there. It really makes no difference to who He is. If He gets in my way, then He's gone. I'll pick Him back up later when it's convenient. Now to set your mind on the things of God is first to affirm who Jesus is. That He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we don't do that just in voice. We do it with a life that is fully, completely submitted to Him as Lord. Second, to set your mind on the things of God is to know why He came. You can't do this unless you understand how wretched your sin is. How much you have lived in rebellion to Him and tried to live as if this is your world and you are God. As if you are the king of your life. That you are deserving of His eternal wrath. And you can do nothing for yourself but fall on your knees and beg for forgiveness and delight and rejoice and praise God for the fact that He offers forgiveness. He offers reconciliation through the blood of His Son. And third, to set your mind on the things of God means that you take yourself off the throne of your hearts. You put on the rags of a servant. And you're willing to follow Him. Surrendering all that you hold dear. Whatever the cost, you do it gladly. Because He is worth more. He is your hope. Not the hopeless things of this world. He is your satisfaction. Not the fleeting glory or pleasures of man. If we're all honest with ourselves, we have to admit that God's scalpel has penetrated the skin. And it hurts. It hurts. Most of us, you know, we do earnestly want to be cured of the disease, but but we're so afraid of going through with the procedure. In reality, part of us still loves our disease. (laughs) I'm begging you to trust the physician. Trust him in his cure. Let Him do His will on your life. Set your mind on the things of God. If you are to be healed, you must let Him have His way. You can't simply affirm the problem and only be willing to accept part of the cure. You have to embrace it all. The cost is going to be great. But the cost of doing nothing is far greater. Entrust your soul to the physician and to His cure. Now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I just want us to take a few moments of silent reflection. I want you to think about how this truth, this cost of discipleship, this way in which we love ourselves and not fully embrace God, comes to bear on our lives. How have you accepted part of Christ, but not all? How have you professed Him, 
yet your actions prove you to be His adversary? What things in your life have you put first? What have you put before Christ? Think about these things and I beg you to respond in repentance and faith. And in just a few moments, Jim's going to come up and pray for us and we'll take the Lord's Supper.